Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode about the terrible situation in Gaza and Israel. We have tried to do this podcast several times with Amnesty International I think it's very critical that we do not spread any kind of misinformation at this time. So I did not want to do this without Amnesty's leadership. I'm an Amnesty ambassador. I wanted Amnesty to curate it. And we are going to do a show with a panel in the new year. In the meantime, I am lucky enough today to get to speak to the CEO of Amnesty International UK, who's going to talk us through the situation there in an informed and measured and sensitive way. And I'm going to ask questions that I hope allow him to shed some light on the situation. We know that many people listening uh, feel very, very passionately, as do we, about it. We understand that people have very, very strong feelings about this. We ask you to listen with an open mind. Amnesty has a very, very important remit to focus on human rights and the human rights of civilians. And certainly for me, I've found it, as I know all of you have, extremely emotional and disturbing to watch what has been going on for the last couple of months. I think we've all felt somewhat paralyzed by it. There's been a lot of inflammatory conversations going about online. Uh, We've done our best to do this in the best way possible and as you know economically as we can and we're sorry that it has been delayed as long as it has and we hope that you find this uh discussion informative thank you very much for listening we know it's a hard we know it's a hard thing to listen to So today I'm here to introduce the CEO of Amnesty International UK, Sasha Deshmukh, on the current crisis in Gaza and Israel. Sasha, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. I know how busy you must be as CEO of Amnesty UK at the moment. Could you give us a little bit of background on the situation in Gaza and Israel? What's going on? How did we get here? Thank you, Deborah. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I think it's important for us all to remember that this region, sadly, has been in the grip of a human rights crisis spanning decades. Amnesty International has been working in the region for many, many years, documenting human rights violations for many, many years with teams on the ground in Israel, in Gaza and the wider occupied Palestinian territories. And I think quite importantly, as well, as well as our own researchers on the ground investigating war crimes, we work with some expert partners in the region, including Israeli human rights organisations, such as an organisation called Bet Salem, as well as Palestinian human rights organisations, such as Al Haq. And for the last 16 years, the people of Gaza, sadly, have been effectively shut off from the outside world. Um, There's been an enormous heavily fortified wall that surrounds the Gaza Strip. Um, All of the entry and exit points are controlled by Israeli authorities and Israeli authorities have placed Gaza under an illegal blockade 
for the last 16 years, which means that all Palestinians in the occupied Gaza Strip have effectively, for some period, um, been subject to a collective punishment, which has restricted access to food, clean water, fuel, other vital supplies such as building materials, and even impacted areas such as medicines and healthcare. Collective punishment of any kind is a war crime. And one war crime doesn't justify another war crime, I want to make absolutely clear. So the fact that that collective punishment has existed for a number of years does not justify the actions that took place on the 7th of October. And I can talk a little bit more about those and the work that Amnesty International has done in relation to those specific war crimes that continue with the holding of hostages as well. But just to paint that picture of the context and the background that you asked about, the occupied Gaza Strip, for any of your listeners who don't know, is a, is a very tiny sliver of land. I'm sure lots of people do know it's small, but maybe perhaps haven't got a sense of that scale and that size. It's a sliver of land about the size of a quarter of the city of London. And it's very densely populated. 2.3 million people are trying to survive there. Um, the median age is 18 years old. And even prior to the current conflict, the living conditions in Gaza were dire. Over half of the adult population were unemployed. Um, hospitals were struggling to operate. 95% of people didn't always have access to clean drinking water. And the economy has, for essentially for a number of years, been de-developed um, as a result of that blockade that I spoke about. And add to that that the periodic bombardment of the Gaza Strip with Israeli airstrikes, um, many of which we believe have shown a total disregard for international law, have meant that for many years there have been civilian casualties and there's also been an ongoing collapse of, of, of the civilian infrastructure, even leading up to the period in this current crisis um, when we have obviously seen that intensify a great deal. It's a couple of years ago now that Amnesty International published a report in which we concluded that Israeli authorities are committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians, not only in Gaza, but across Israel, the West Bank, and amongst Palestinian refugee populations as well. Um, and the blockade that has existed on Gaza for many years and the deprivation of, of Gazans' rights is one aspect of that system. So I think you can see that the current crisis has emerged in a context of a, sadly, a human rights crisis for many, many years. Most recently, clearly, what we've therefore seen is an intensification of war crimes um, in a situation where there have been war crimes by different sides for many, many years. And that's, I think, what makes the current situation so tragic, so sad, but also clearly the impact on the civilians affected by this amongst all communities is what's most alarming um, in the context of the last couple of months. It's, it's certainly extremely disturbing to see the imagery coming out of Gaza at the moment. What is your assessment of the situation today? Well, today the situation is um, really something that I think justifies an adjective such as catastrophic. Um, today, of course, bombardment continues. More than around 17,000 um, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have been killed. And sadly, that includes more than around 7,000 children. And a civilian death toll of this magnitude in such a short space of time, um, and where the overall population is so concentrated, is a, is a completely staggering rate of fatalities. I do want to emphasise very, very much that decades of war crimes, which we believe have been committed by Israeli authorities against Gaza, do not justify the actions of Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups um, on the 7th of October, or indeed the continued hostage taking. And we do also see Hamas launching thousands of rockets into southern Israel. Um, of course, on the 7th of October, they broke through the heavily fortified border into Israel and killed over 1,200 people. And as well as mass summary killings and abductions, uh, there are also reports of sexual violence as well. And I think it's important for us to emphasise that those acts are war crimes. Um, but the war crimes committed by Hamas and other armed groups do not justify 
war crimes being committed by Israeli forces in response. So now in Gaza, the assessment of the situation today, we have nearly 85% of the civilian population displaced, according to the United Nations. Many of these people... 85% of the population displaced. Yes, nearly 85% of the population displaced. And actually, when we talk about that displaced population, it's important to remember that they've been displaced multiple times in many cases. So it's not just a case of being displaced and leaving their home to seek safety. They've often done that and then been displaced further from places at which they originally sought safety, such as schools, hospitals or or places of worship, where they only then found themselves under attack again and have been displaced again. As well as the relentless airstrikes, the already illegal blockade of Gaza has been tightened, uh, shutting off access to food, water, fuel. Um, Health facilities are essentially collapsing now as a result. 35 United Nations human rights experts have warned of the potential of a genocide in the making. And in this instance, we believe our assessment of the situation today is where there is such a disregard for international law, we need an immediate ceasefire. Uh, Every second that goes by without a ceasefire costs the lives of civilians, including children. Um, Amnesty International is also calling for a suspension of arms sales to all parties involved in this conflict, but including the state of Israel, to ensure that arms, for example, from the UK are not complicit in crimes that are now being committed in Gaza. But that's really only the beginning. I think to prevent this endless cycle of violence in Israel and Palestine from continuing, what we really need to see is an end to the impunity that stands at the root of this crisis. And for that to happen, human rights investigators need unfettered access to Gaza to document violations. Um, And we need to ensure that anyone who breaks international law must face justice. Um, And crucially, we also need a really strong focus that Israel must dismantle the system of apartheid that's been inflicted on, on Palestinians. I think it's impossible to realise a long-term vision of peace and justice, unless everyone in Israel, Gaza and the rest of the occupied Palestinian territories is treated with respect and treated with dignity for their human rights. Obviously, it was extremely shocking and distressing to see um, citizens kidnapped and to hear very distressing reports of sexual assault and killing. And we feel so much for those civilians and their families and how traumatizing it must be. It really has shocked me in the hostage exchange because that's something we immediately knew about. And there were lots of, you know, of course, bring them home. Understandably, the families so distressed, the hostage survivors so traumatized. And it has really shocked me to learn in the hostage exchange between Israel and Hamas how many Palestinians have been taken from their homes, imprisoned, many without being convicted, and just held indefinitely. And for those people who some of them have been imprisoned for years, many of them children, minors, women of all ages, some elderly, and there's been no international kind of bring them home or really knowledge of how they've been kept or, you know, and I I didn't know about that. I didn't know that that, that happened in such a, a frequent way. And since I've, you know, read more about it, I've been really shocked by how little regard for law that there is from Israel to Palestinian citizens. Is this common? Is this something that Amnesty has known about and been campaigning against for a long time? Sadly, um, we have, since this latest phase of the conflict began, seen an increase in the use of um, arbitrary detention, increase in the use of the detention of Palestinians, for example, in the West Bank, without 
due process. But this is not something that is new. Um, you're right to point to the fact that perhaps uh, some more attention is now being paid to the issues relating to the detention, arbitrary arrest, um, arbitrary detention without due process of Palestinians since uh, most recent weeks. But the pattern of those kind of actions has been something that uh, Amnesty International has raised repeatedly for many years. You are absolutely right to say that as we focus on this situation now, the arbitrary detention, the kidnapping of Israeli civilians is completely unjustified and is horrific. And all of our thoughts should be with those people who are kidnapped and their family members, of course. But at the same time, um, for any Palestinian family member who have seen their, any member of their family, sometimes children as well, um, be unlawfully detained. And as I say, we have seen that increasing as an action in the West Bank, for example, over the last uh, couple of months. That is obviously an equally alarming situation for any family member and for anyone who has been separated from their family. We've also seen concerning imagery, and I should stress that this imagery has not yet been verified by Amnesty International, uh, but in the last few days, I'm sure some of your listeners will have seen imagery of um, people who've been detained and appear to have been detained by Israeli forces, um, men who have been um, stripped to their underwear. Um, I stress that that imagery, that footage has not been verified by Amnesty International, but were that to be verified by ourselves, verified by other sources. I know it's certainly been covered in the last few days a lot in in, in uh, a lot of reputable media outlets. Um, that's also an example of something very alarming because um, the Geneva Conventions are very clear that armed forces are not immune from needing to properly respect the rights of people that they hold, including um, for example, ensuring that they properly respect their dignity, that they protect anyone whom they hold captive from public display. So that kind of action too is also uh, very alarming as well. Can I ask what has been your message to political leaders in this crisis? And what, if anything, has been the response? So Amnesty International um, is a worldwide organisation and we're working worldwide talking to political leaders, whether that's in all of the different countries that Amnesty operates in um, or whether it's at, uh, in the global political uh, bodies such as the United Nations. Uh, my focus has been talking with the UK government and UK political leaders, as that's the part of Amnesty that I'm focused in. And the UK is an influential leader within the world. It's a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, so it's, it's a very important part of the world uh, framework of international laws that govern uh, conflicts and situations such as this. I'm sad to say that I think the response from UK political leaders overall has been disappointing and not consistent. And that's really at the heart of my disappointment. Because while I think it's absolutely correct for leaders in this country from across political parties to have condemned uh, war crimes that we may have seen uh, that Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups conducting against Israeli civilians. Consistency is critical when it comes to any aspect of the law, and international law is no different than that. And so for those same political leaders to talk about the Israeli government needing to abide by international law, saying it must respect human rights, when there are very specific instances and clear evidence that there may be war crimes taking place, um, it seems to me that there has been an inconsistency of clarity of calling out some war crimes versus, in other cases, talking about war crimes as if it's just an abstract concept and not being willing to call them out as, as, as clearly. I think there's been a growing acceptance of the need for hostilities to end, um, the Labour Party seems to be strengthening some of its calls for a cessation in hostilities. Um, and obviously, the UK government is supporting humanitarian pauses. But when I've met with political leaders and officials, I've continued to tell them the same things that I've been I'm telling you, that we do need a ceasefire, that we need accountability, um, and actually that the long-term solution can only be built if, if apartheid ends. I am pleased in the last few 
days that we've seen some positive movement amongst uh, UK political leaders on accountability, uh, which has been an important part of what Amnesty has been emphasising for years, but very much so since the, the events of the 7th of October as well. After years of undermining the International Criminal Court's mandate to investigate human rights abuses in Palestine and Israel, the UK government now accepts the court's independence and jurisdiction, which is important. That might sound technical, but it's actually uh, very important because I think that chronic impunity has been at the core of of this crisis um, and a kind of feeling by all parties that um, the bodies that are there to enforce international law, that are there to enforce international humanitarian law, are somehow not going to be applicable in these cases and, and not hold people to account. So it's good that the UK now recognises the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. But I think that we do still need to see the UK and others give their unconditional and unequivocal support to the ICC, including making sure it has the resources it needs for an investigation into the situation in Palestine, which the prosecutor um, has confirmed would include an investigation into the into the current crisis. And I do want to say a very important point about UK political leaders, um, which you asked me about, and the importance of an arms embargo in this conflict. Amnesty International is calling for a comprehensive arms embargo for all parties to the conflict in Israel and Gaza, which must include the UK ceasing to supply arms and related equipment to uh, Israel which includes suspending all extant individual and open arms uh, export licenses currently in force, given that there's such a clear risk that those weapons will be used to kill civilians in Gaza and elsewhere. And I'm really sad to say that I believe that the UK government exploits a loophole uh, to be able to arm Israel by supplying components for US-made F-16 and F-35 fighter aircraft in the full knowledge that they're being used in military action in Gaza. So I think it's clear that the UK's arms licensing system is not really fit for purpose in assessing risk and is riddled with loopholes and is in desperate need of a root and branch reform. But in the meantime, the UK can and should cease the licensing of arms and related equipment to Israel, including components supplied via third countries immediately. So I think we've seen a inconsistency of UK political leader response, perhaps as so many humanitarian actors, including Amnesty International, but of course, incredible humanitarian organisations that are on the ground um, in Gaza, the United Nations, um, human rights organisations, including Israeli human rights organisations, as well as uh, Palestinian, perhaps because people have been so clear over the last eight weeks or so I think we have seen some movement, in particular the recognition of the International Criminal Court, which is welcome. But I do think that a greater consistency and certainly um, a greater willingness to act, particularly, for example, on the area of arms exports, is needed across the political leadership of, of the UK, as this situation is now such an intense crisis, so clearly affecting so many civilians. Of all the shocking things about this absolute humanitarian, ghastly, just horrifying humanitarian crisis, the fact that British leadership is both inconsistent and disappointing is the least shocking thing about this. Um, It's really easy to feel that this is hopeless and to feel kind of paralysed by it, especially people who have family members and friends and co-workers and who are involved or affected or but even the imagery that you see on social media now it just it really I don't think it should matter who you are who you know it is so disturbing is there hope I don't want to sugarcoat um the situation um or say that there is uh significant hope or a positive around the corner when we are clearly talking about a situation that is that and a conflict that has lasted for decades and is immensely difficult um, and is having such horrific impact right now. I think what I would say though is that history has shown that if there is focus 
if there is focus from the international community, if there is a willingness to step into positions of leadership on all sides, that even intractable conflicts can see roots out of a perpetual cycle of conflict. The critical ingredients within that, I think history has also shown, is that the long-term journey out of a conflict can only be built with a human rights-respecting journey. Mm. Um, It can only be built when a situation such as a situation of apartheid is tackled and dismantled. Can I ask you, Sasha, about the word apartheid? Because a lot of people associate it with South Africa. And I see people often online denying that there is apartheid in Israel. Can you define the word apartheid and tell us why this crime of apartheid is being used against the Palestinians? The origins of the word apartheid obviously are specific to the place I think that most people associate apartheid with South Africa from the period shortly after the end of the Second World War till the mid-1990s when the South African system of apartheid was dismantled. And that's the the origins of that word. I think perhaps what uh, many people don't realise is that the crime of apartheid doesn't only refer to the situation in South Africa over those those decades. It's actually defined in international law. It's very clearly defined in the Rome statute. And it's not only in South Africa through history that we have seen the crime of apartheid being being undertaken. Typically, when states undertake the crime of apartheid, what we are talking about is states on the basis of race, treating populations, controlling populations with a significant difference of the way in which they're treating populations on that basis of race, exercising control in particular ways, the criminal justice system, um, the systems of occupation, economic opportunities open to people, all of those areas affected on the basis of race. Many organisations, not just Amnesty International, have now been very clear that there is a situation of apartheid in Israel, in the occupied Palestinian territories, and indeed in, in, in Israel's treatment of um, Palestinian refugee populations as well. It was in 2022 that Amnesty International published a detailed evidential report on this, in which we looked at a large amount of evidence of practices um, by Israeli authorities, and were looking at that in relation to the definitions of apartheid in, in international law. And that's what gives me the confidence to say that this is an evidential point. It's not just a subjective point, or perhaps as some people sometimes think, it's a, an adjective that people throw away lightly. Amnesty International describes the situation facing Palestinians as apartheid because of a detailed analysis of that situation and how it's affecting the lives of Palestinians in Israel, but also in the occupied Palestinian territories, including Gaza, um, and how that rates in relation to the ways in which apartheid is defined in international law, we are far from the only expert human rights organisation that uses that definition and states that situation, including, I should highlight, some Israeli human rights organisations as well. So while I know there are some people within the Israeli political establishment who don't like that uh, description, and I'm not surprised that they don't like that description because it provides a clarity of the situation facing so many Palestinians. I think it's actually important to also recognise that there are people in the Israeli political establishment, including former ministers with significant responsibility, including Israeli human rights experts, who have recognised that the crime of apartheid is being carried out and that that has been part of the, the decades of conflict that we have seen and we obviously see continuing right now. If you keep people in a situation of apartheid is revolution inevitable well i think that again history has shown that any population where there is a lack of respect for human rights sadly creates a situation where some people within that oppressed population believe that the only route is to fail to respect the human rights of others. 
Now, Amnesty International, very clear, we never believe, we never believe that a violation of one person's human rights justifies a violation of second person's human rights, or put even more severely, that one war crime justifies another war crime. We never believe that. But has history shown, sadly, that in situations where one group is oppressing another group, that there are people who believe and in fact try and convince others that the the violation of the oppressor's human rights, the violation of the rights of another civilian population is somehow justified. Yes, through history that has been shown. That's what can lead to cycles of violence. What history has also shown, and I suppose this is where I would say, I wouldn't want to say we have hope at the moment, but I would want to say in a room that seems entirely dark, if there is one corner of light that perhaps shows the route to which the international community, others, we all need to focus on is what has history shown is the only route out of places where we have that cycle of violence. And it's a human rights respecting route out. It takes leadership uh, from the international community, but obviously also crucially leadership from, from communities involved to say we need to break the cycle of violence. We need to actually ensure that we are building a future where the human rights of all are respected um, and acknowledged and actually um, there is no longer impunity for people who may have uh, broken uh, those rights in the past, but we also build structures and a journey that will respect those rights going forward as well. So if, if a system like of apartheid or any form, other form of human rights violation can be seen as something that sadly constantly fuels a cycle of violence, and, and I think history has shown that it frequently can, perhaps then we also need to look at that and say, well, what's the mirror image of that? The mirror image of that is it takes people saying, actually, no, it has to be a rights respecting situation to build a journey out of that. And there can never be any journey to a lasting peace that is built on the oppression of one population overwhelmingly by the authorities that are claiming to do that on behalf of another population. We have never seen that in history lead to any form of a sustainable peace. So what why isn't that already happening? Why can't we make that happen? Why can't the UN facilitate that to happen? I think for some years now, some people would argue since the late 1990s, there's been a, a mixture of a um, belief amongst some members of the international community that either the situation doesn't require so much attention, or maybe they simply have been more distracted from the situation by other crises that have occurred in, in other locations, and that there's been a kind of hope that the situation might be containable. Now, even were that to be true, we should all remember that that means that there are human rights violations happening every single day. But I think that the events of the last couple of months, again, have reminded us that you can't put a lid on a situation where there is a mass uh, violation of the human rights of, of a population um, and believe that that lid can stay on that situation forever. And in a region where there are clearly very strong layers of geopolitical impact um, and there are clearly, going back generations, areas where the uh, religious nature uh, of the differences of populations means that whole countries across the region very quickly are drawn into the conflict, um, or at least, at the very least, unable to work together peacefully. We see that the idea that you can put a lid on this situation and somehow it has no impacts around the world, let alone that you're actually dealing with the human rights violations affecting people in all the communities involved in the immediate situation is just a fantasy. So if one thing were to come out of the intensity of the current crisis, if it were to be not only the need for an immediate ceasefire, but that can't then lead to the disengagement of the international community. It has to lead to the engagement of that community in building a human rights-based solution, a human rights-based journey, and it would be a journey 
for all of the um, populations and countries involved. I suppose we stand on the cusp, don't we, as to whether that's the focus that the international community gives or in this case, do I think there's really an, another positive alternative? No, I don't. Um, I don't think that just hoping that if we all forget about this conflict, even if even if there is a ceasefire at some point, we then just say, hey, we can just leave it to itself. I don't think that's really credible. I don't think that you can think that regional peace for any even short term, let alone long or medium, long term length of time can be built on just forgetting about this conflict. So I suppose, do I feel that the moment we stand on the cusp of the international community needing to give a focus to rights, genuine rights-based solution that deals with the rights of all communities affected, or do we stand on the cusp, sadly, of this last few months leading to something that could have very, very severe consequences, geopolitical consequences within the region, if not beyond? I think we probably are at that fork in the road, actually. Um, easy, as we kind of talk, uh, you know, December time to want to always say, hey, don't worry, there's hope, you know, there's hope, it can just, it will just emerge. But I think the reality is we're at a fork in the road. There is one of those routes that could be a difficult but important journey towards a medium or long term peace. And it's going to take enormous commitment, it's going to take the international community standing firm and clear and building a rights-based solution. The other fork in the road, not only do I think it will have major consequences even beyond the current conflict that we've seen, which is obviously having you know, huge consequences for the people involved right now, but I also see something very worrying in it because we hear from people around the world, particularly younger people around the world, that this inconsistency that we're seeing at the moment from countries such as the US and the UK um, in relation to, to talking clearly about human rights violations by Israel has got the potential to mean that younger people around the world no longer believe in the international order, in the UN, in confidence they can have in bodies such as the International Criminal Court. And the only people who will be happy if the international order that underpins international law and human rights is undermined will be really bad actors, because they'll be the only people who are happy that that order crumbles and that no one really has the ability to use an order to police actions on behalf of us all. So I really call out to governments such as the UK government and the US government and, and other governments that say they have a commitment to that order, that we really need to see not just the consistency, but actually now building, using that order to try and support a human rights-based solution, uh, not just for the future of peace in this region, critical as that is, but frankly, actually, for there to be a future for the international order itself that will be trusted by people equally around the world, rather than perhaps seen as something that countries such as the US and the UK believe in, as long as we're using it to enforce something against people we don't like, but that's something we don't really believe in as strongly if the actions that need to be policed are being done by some of our friends. Oh, it's, it's, it, the whole thing is so deeply, deeply devastating. Is there anything we can do as Guilty Feminists listeners? You know, can we, well, how can we help? Who should we give money to? Is there any point in telling our MPs, you know, again and again, like what what is it that we can do? So this is clearly a very, very difficult situation where I think lots of people feel that they want to do something and they feel frustrated. I think that it is important that political leaders in, in our country and in other countries hear clearly how much uh, people care about human rights of those countries. So whether that's people who are writing to their MPs or um, or people who are taking part in things like the many actions that organisations like Amnesty International organises, I think those are important. There are clearly some amazing organisations that are working on the ground, trying their best to deliver humanitarian um, support in Gaza. But I should say that one of the alarming situations as I talk right now is that this is probably one of the most difficult places those kind of humanitarian actors who are used to delivering humanitarian aid in all sorts of conflicts, in all sorts of terrible situations. I've never heard so many say that the nature of the conflict, the nature of the way that the um, the bombardment and the action is taking place in, in Gaza means that it's stopping them being able to deliver aid. I've never heard them quite as worried as I have in the last few weeks. That doesn't mean they're not worthy of your support. I think it means they're even more worthy of your support. But the situation 
for them trying to deliver is really is really desperate, um, including obviously them being worried about the safety and security of their own colleagues who are who are there in Gaza who should be focusing on delivering humanitarian aid, but in some cases are uh, we're not even sure if they're safe or, or or alive minute by minute. Amnesty International is is looking at um, uh, is, is we've you know put more effort behind trying to actually produce the evidence that keeps people clear actually what is happening in a situation where I think there's a hell of a lot of noise and you know within places in the media and social media I think there's a lot of people who perhaps aren't always speaking from a place of evidence so we've had to really up and intensify our, our efforts through what we call our our evidence lab to make sure that there is actually verified evidential proof of what's happening relating to, to human rights violations, how that's affecting all civilians. So I think any of our organisations who are working in these areas, none of us knew that the last couple of months would be as intense as they, as they have been, and we've all had to step up. So I'm sure whether it's humanitarian organisations or human rights organisations like Amnesty International, if anyone is able to give us greater support, of course, we really we do really welcome that as well. Okay, so Amnesty will take donations and reputable organisations that are saying that they're doing what they can to get aid through. Um, I've been reading and seeing videos saying roads are down, hospitals are bombed, people are being starved out, there's no water, there's no electricity, there's no nothing. And so even people who've survived horrendous bombings and children trapped under rubble, no one can get to them. And you just... I, we've just it feels like we've just never seen anything like this. I mean, when perhaps one way of looking at this rather than saying is that all we can do is is this, is this something that does really matter? Yes, it does because you know again, all of those organisations who are trying to deliver humanitarian aid, those of us who are really trying to focus people clarity of the impact on 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 human beings in relation to what that means in in relation to international human rights law, none of us. Um, knew that we would have to work at the intensity that we've had to work. Obviously, many of us have been working in this region for many years, and I've knew that we're working at this intensity. So it may feel like a small thing to be able to do, but even those whatever small um, levels of support that people can give to organisations like ours, it can make a big difference. I think people speaking clearly to political leaders and saying that it matters does make a difference as well. You are right that the severity of this situation at least in recent years and its intensity, I don't think is something that many of us have, have, have seen in this way. You're absolutely right that um, there are, uh, to take the kind of humanitarian situation, you know, you may have heard people talk about the importance of fuel. Um, that's not just in the ways that we think about fuel in our day-to-day lives here normally, you know, where you think about just moving around yourself. Um, that's things like the fuel that's required for water pumping stations to be able to work and you know that's that we're talking about when we're talking about food you know a, a place that prior even to this most intense stage of the conflict was had an overwhelming dependence on international aid for people to be able to eat sufficiently so as soon as that kind of supply is cut off by what's what's happening with a you know massive conflict that makes it impossible for it to to, to deliver you're talking about people who are are facing starvation we're seeing something that's affecting a civilian population at scale in a way and with an intensity that we haven't necessarily seen in recent years in this way um, many people aren't necessarily familiar why should they be with the climate in the area but it perhaps perhaps it's not intuitive that actually Gaza has quite a cold winter um, which is obviously a period approaching now so again if people have been um, displaced already, even if they aren't facing a bomb that is dropping on them right this moment, they might be outside in the car park of a school or a hospital or wherever that they they have gone for safety. You know, the need for food and shelter is even more increased. I don't want to um, pretend to people listening that there's some easy answer or lever that any of us can pull. Certainly not the many people listening and say, "Hey, you know, just do that and don't worry. You can feel that you've done your bit." And don't worry, the problem's the problem's going to get better. We're talking about something which is a um, has been a decades long human rights crisis that over those decades has affected the rights and the lives of all civilians in the area. Obviously, extremely severely, the lives of the Palestinian population in the West Bank, in Israel, in Gaza, 
over many decades now where there has been a, a system of apartheid. Um, while I think any of us will want there to be something that we can easily grab now that will solve the problem, I suppose what I would say is, while it might seem that whether you're giving money to a humanitarian organisation, Amnesty International, or writing to your politician, you might think, is that all I could do? I suppose what I would say is, do that, but also don't stop paying attention to this situation in a few weeks or even in a few months' time. We obviously hope, um, we're campaigning strongly for a ceasefire, we hope there is that ceasefire. A ceasefire alone doesn't somehow solve this situation, although we believe it's critical to affecting the immediate you know, mass violations of human rights that we're seeing right now. But what we then will need to do as as individuals, but also as countries, as the international community, is perhaps give an intensified focus of trying to help this conflict finally reach a solution that doesn't continue to have decades of impunity, that doesn't continue to have decades going forward where there isn't a human rights-based journey out of this. So that's going to take all of us continuing our attention um, and not saying that this is something that our political leaders can talk about strongly right now because it's been you know the first item on the news for two months but don't worry next year as we approach an election etc etc that we will just say it doesn't matter what the what the what the approach of our political leaders will be all of us in countries whether it's the UK the US across Western Europe as well as obviously within the region should be actually saying this really does matter alongside of course a whole lot of other issues that affect our lives day to day and that we expect our political leaders to show their commitment and, frankly, their vision for a different future and how they will be committed to helping to deliver that. I mean, given we have a two-party system effectively in this country and both of those parties are not calling for a ceasefire, although you're saying Labour might be getting a bit closer, like every country in the UN said, let's call for a ceasefire except America, which said, keep bombing. And the UK, we abstained. Which is so cowardly, um, but that is that presumably we don't want to go against America and also we don't want to be seen to be going, yeah, keep bombing all the children. Is that what that's about? Well, I think... It, or is that not the thing you can say as the CEO of Amnesty? Well, it's it's uh, what I can certainly say as the CEO of Amnesty is that we believe that the UK and other governments should be clearly acting for a ceasefire and indeed the... You know, it was a highly unusual moment for the um, United Nations Secretary General to use the power that led to that vote a few days ago. Um, very, very unusual for the UN Secretary General to step in that way and say that they believe that this is necessary. So clearly, you know, really, really sad. And dis- Does it matter that America said no, keep bombing, if everyone else has said no? Is it majority rules? Uh, well, it would, unfortunately, in the case of a ceasefire at the UN Security Council, any permanent five member of the Security Council, such as the United States, that vetoes such a resolution means that even if there's a, a large number of other countries that want to support it, that, that resolution can't be can't be passed. That's what I thought. But I thought it was Yeah. I thought it was worth an ask. Some of our listeners might be wondering that. Yeah. Um, because it would seem like if there's only one against, you would think, but basically they can they can kind of block it. I don't know how anyone can be watching this imagery and going, yeah, what the situation needs is more bombs. Like, it's just beyond inhumane to imagine that. It just seems impossible um, that anybody would say, yeah, keep bombing. When do you think it might stop or you can't say you don't know? It's obviously very difficult to know when it might stop. I mean, I think we've heard um, some Israeli authorities talking about um, feeling close to a period when they will have um, reached their military aims. But I don't think any of us know whether close is a matter of hours, days or weeks or months. And clearly within any of those time frames, oh hours, there could be... I mean, what are their military aims? To get rid of all the civilians in Gaza? That seems like the military... Like, they can't really be claiming we're doing this because you still have some of our hostages because you could be bombing the hostages. Well, I think we believe, from Amnesty's perspective, that we believe a ceasefire is not just valuable because of the um, it, the extent to which the the military campaign that's underway at the moment is is clearly seeing civilians 
hideously and enormously affected by that military campaign. But we also believe that within a ceasefire, that could allow parties to negotiate for the release of those those hostages, which is obviously also a human rights violation for any civilian to be kidnapped and held hostage. It's very difficult for me to comment on what may or may not be Israel's aims within this. What I would say, though, is perhaps if people have heard things like Israel is bombing a particular site, such as a hospital, because it believes that there may be Hamas people within that hospital, and that somehow sometimes that can be presented as um, it's absolutely okay to bomb any amount of civilian infrastructure if you think there might also be a military aim. I think it's really important to be clear that the laws of war are clear, that that somehow the fact that there may be, may be an, a military aim that someone has does not mean that you can destroy a site, awesome. such as a hospital or a school, or even just a civilian neighbourhood, where you have good knowledge about that the is a war crime, civilian population. Right? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that you can just do that with impunity and do that at any scale. And in fact, the um, that, that we believe that there have been um, instances where there does need to now be an investigation, such as by the International Criminal Court, of some of the actions of Israel, where Amnesty International has evidence that we believe there could have been war crimes in the nature of some of their attacks on on civilian areas. Obviously, Amnesty has only highlighted some of those because we have to look into the evidence in detail in order for us to cite specific examples. I'm sure there may well be others as well. But just to be clear, Amnesty, even with the extent to which we look in detail at um, the footage of bombing, verify that, etc., we believe that there have been examples of uh, in the Israeli military action Um, which do need to be investigated by the International Criminal Court because there's evidence that there may well have been war crimes, absolutely. I mean, it seems just from what you can see in the news that there's war crimes, but I know you're not allowed to officially say that until there are, until it is official, but it just seems impossible to think that bombing hospitals and schools and refugee camps and orphanages and saying everyone moves south and then bombing south and, you know, it, it I feel I can say it can't not be. I know you have to be very careful about what you say, but it seems to me that, and I am just an onlooker, so you know what I say is not as important as what Amnesty says, of course, but it seems unbelievably shocking, terrifying, and we can only try and keep the pressure up and hope it ends soon. Um, one thing I, I just want, just I need to let you go, because I know you've got many things to be doing as the CEO of Amnesty at the moment. But one thing I just want to ask is, I sometimes now feel there's a a certain futility in social media because of the way the algorithms are, because of shadow banning. feels like you only now reach with the algorithms people who already violently agree with you, who then feel like, oh, I've done something by sharing this post with other people that also violently agree with me, or people that really disagree with you. And then it seems like, you antagonize those people and then you get them sharing more stuff in a very emotional way that is works against what you wanted to share. Like social media is good for some things, but in terms of posting political messaging beyond please donate to this or you know, how much use do you think it is? Because it's it's something that I worry about. I I, I think um Clearly, in any situation at the moment, and this and this, you know, very intense conflict is 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 no different to this, or even some might argue it's even more intense in what I'm about to say. Um, it's very easy, particularly within social media, to um, find yourself either, as you say, kind of isolated from evidence that you don't want to hear in the spaces that you're talking to, um, but also um, in spaces where you know there are actors who appear to be trying to just foment hate. You know, there is no space in this conflict because of this conflict for anyone to claim that there's a justification for anti-Semitism in the UK or for somehow saying that people in the UK are responsible for this crisis because of their religion. But we've heard that both in terms of anti-Semitism and actually in terms of Islamophobia in spread in the UK and Amnesty International and indeed in other countries and Amnesty International has actually said that we think that social media companies are not exercising their responsibilities within this conflict as well. It's really difficult. I mean, I wish I had an answer to, I suppose, something that is just an intractable difficulty in public debate right now. I suppose what I would say is 
this is why people pointing to the evidential um, viewpoints, not just of Amnesty International, although obviously I would say that was important, but there's been excellent research and publications by Human Rights Watch. Um, there's been excellent uh, commentary and publications by UN bodies. Um, people, when they hear the, the extent to which UN bodies are speaking out, they might sometimes forget that the UN doesn't speak lightly and UN bodies, including the UN bodies responsible uh, as they have been for many decades for working with Palestinian refugees, don't speak lightly when they are talking about the severity of the impacts right now. Um, bodies such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International don't speak lightly when we talk about the impact on the civilian population in Israel of the actions of Hamas and the Palestinian armed groups. So even within the kind of social media ferment, I suppose my advice to us all would be, if you're just hearing the viewpoint of another person, of course, everyone's entitled to their view. But perhaps if you're thinking about what weight you should give that viewpoint, maybe perhaps there is a little bit more weight to bodies um, to media outlets which do verify the information that they put out. I've talked a lot about Amnesty verifying evidence. I mean, obviously, BBC has BBC Verify, which is a very similar set of methodologies that it ap applies to, to anything that it puts onto its own channels. I know that there's many people who criticise different media channels either way, and those are legitimate points for people to make about editorial policy. But perhaps organisations that have more of a history of verifying evidence have an even more important place within this conflict than ever before. Sometimes the language used, though, has its own weight. You know, I've heard people complaining about major news outlets referring to Israeli women and children and then Palestinian under-18s and females. And, you know, like a motive language that slightly dehumanises one side or the other. And I understand anti-Semitism is clearly on the rise. I saw a very, very strange thing of somebody senior at Harvard being asked, would you take action against a student calling for the genocide of Jewish people? And then kind of like hedging and going, well, it depends if it turns into... I was like, what? Obviously, yes. Like, why would you not? Why would you not just say yes? It just seemed... And I think they felt like they were being tricked into saying something that would then be held, you know, against them, like, you know, like, therefore, you shouldn't allow, you know, pro-Palestinian rights rallies or something like that. But the question was pretty damn clear. Like, yes, of course, calling for the genocide of Jewish people or any group is clearly actionable and clearly unacceptable on any campus or anywhere. It was very, very strange to see that and, you know, and horrifying and, and frightening for our Jewish friends and listeners, you know, I know. But also you see Islamophobia massively on the rise as well, and it's all escalating. And so I think your advice is good. Share things from reputable human rights sources who are doing the work and are fact-checking and don't share any random stuff. Uh, write to your MP, donate to reputable organisations and they'll get the aid through that they can, donate to Amnesty, join Amnesty, become a member. I am sorry that you do not have better news for us, but we are planning to have a curated Amnesty panel in the new year in the UK and we appreciate Amnesty's collaboration and support with the Guilty Feminist to do what we can, which feels so insignificant given the scheme of things. We really appreciate your time. Um, is there anything, Sasha, that you came to say that you didn't get to say? I really appreciate your time um, hearing from us. I think the point that you have made and you were talking about language, you were talking about clarity of people saying, you know, what would you support someone being able to protest and say, what would you actually say? No, hang on, stop, that's that's hate speech. I talked a little bit earlier about consistency. I talked about that at that point when we were, we were chatting, Deborah, mainly about um, the actions of governments and international law and consistency at places like the UN. And it is critical there, and I've got deep concerns. There hasn't been consistency from governments such as our own. But actually that point of consistency, I think, spreads more widely as well. And I think, you know, that's perhaps something that all of us can keep in mind. As you say, a child is a child from any population. A woman who faces sexual violence because someone is trying to take some form of armed action is a woman and they're facing sexual 
the threat of sexual violence or the actual reality of sexual violence. Yeah. Someone who has been killed is a person. They are a person. They are a father. They are a mother. They are a child. They are a sister. They are a brother. Someone who's been kidnapped is is the same. And perhaps one of the things that all of us can do, particularly in a very frenzied situation such as this, is as you're thinking about anything that you might say, pause for a moment and actually just say, I'm going to think about perhaps the point of view of any of the civilians involved in this situation from any community. Um, and, it, you know, horrible as it might sound, imagine yourself into any of those those situations. And I think what you see then is that you realise that something that centres the human rights of everyone is the only the only journey that you can possibly imagine out of this. A lot of us are going to need to work very, very, very hard before we even see the first step of that journey taken. And maybe, as I say, we stand at a fork in the road. I don't know whether the world is going to take that first step. If it doesn't, prospects really alarm me. But we have to work hard and try, and that's what we're trying to do. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you so much for all your hard work. Thank I really you. appreciate it. And all for your team and everything Amnesty are doing internationally. Thank you. No problem. Thank you very much, Deborah.